You can open up to Psalm 19, that's where we're going to be this morning, and we've been in a series called Grow to Go, and it's a, um, it's a reason for the hope that is within you. It's looking at an apologetic or a defense of the Christian faith. This morning is part two of uh, God Speaks, looking at the Bible, and we looked at God's existence a couple weeks ago, we're talking about the Bible this week. And really, this morning is going to be an answer to a lot of questions that were asked last week. A bunch of you participated by writing some questions on 3x5 cards, saying, I've always had this question about the Bible, what about this? And you submitted those. And this morning is going to be really, um, some are rapid fire, simple short answers. Some are longer answers because they compile about three or four cards that came in, and they're, they're kind of a bigger, deeper question. But just by way of review, last week we talked about the idea that everyone lives by some ultimate authority. You have an authority, and, and one of the ways, I don't know if you picked up on this this week, but one of the ways you can identify what your ultimate authority is, is who you quote, um, or, or who you rest your opinions on. Um, and when you look at other people and you hear them talk, you can hear where the ultimate authority comes from. For some people, it's popular culture. Well, Oprah said this, or I read this on a bestseller, and so it must be true. Some use scientific research and, and always are quoting those kinds of, of facts. Some people are simply saying, I said so, meaning they're the final authority. They're the ultimate authority, and that's all there is to it. Um, let me give you three traditions that religious authority through the ages have, have kind of come from. And these are generalities, but um, one is tradition. Uh, if I were to, to talk to a, a, a Roman Catholic today, in general, what I would typically hear is this. The church says, the church says, therefore I say and do. So it's a position of the church and it's tradition that really has the ultimate authority. Um, there are some liberal thinkers, some that fall under the, under the heading of Christians, um, but they're liberal in their thinking, and what they would say is ultimate authority is human reason. So that has risen above everything else, and at the top of, of all decision-making is human reason. Uh, that's, a, that's another, another um, religious authority that's there. For a Christian, the written word, specifically the Bible, is the ultimate authority in their life in terms of where they go to. That's why you will hear a Christian often say, well, the Bible says such and such and this and that. That's because they're building their life on that ultimate authority. That doesn't discount the value of tradition or reason, but tradition and reason are not the ultimate authority. Tracking with that? Okay. So, uh, this, this week, I had a wonderful meal uh, over at a Mexican restaurant in, uh, in downtown Las Gatas, and I'm enjoying my burrito, talking with a friend um, that I haven't seen in a long time, at least face-to-face. -face. And, um, and we're sitting there discussing, and within the first few minutes of seeing this friend who doesn't live in the same city as I do, we don't get to see each other very often, we are talking about the parasite Giardia and the effects that Giardia has on my son's body. Uh, if you don't know... Uh, don't go to your smartphone and check it out now. It'll just gross you out. But it's pretty disgusting. It's not a pleasant thing. We have several, several medical workers in here who are smiling broader than the rest of you because they know what it does. And we're discussing this over lunch in great detail. He is leaning forward in his chair. He is really interested in what's going on. Now, I brought my son home from Ethiopia around Thanksgiving time. Not many of you did that same thing to me. You didn't care to ask follow-up questions and really care to know about Giardia. Why? 
Why do you think he did and, and you haven't? He's adopting from Ethiopia. He is about to turn in his dossier, which means in a few months, he's going to be taking the exact same trip that I took to the same city, and he might well have a child with Giardia on a 24-hour flight around the world. He cares about this subject intimately. This is why we're discussing it over burritos in Las Gatas. Not a normal thing, okay? Here's why I bring up my buddy Cliff and the story of Giardia. Because what we're about to talk about is this. Many Sundays, in fact, most Sundays, we talk about what the Bible says. What we do is we say this. We've put the Bible over us as the ultimate authority, and we're looking to see, God, what do you have for us? How do you think? What do you care about? What do you say is true? Because that's what we want to know and discover this morning. This week and last week, here's what we're doing. We are still under the authority of God's word. In fact, we're going to read a passage this morning just to set a tone for how the rest of the morning is going to go. Instead of talking about what's in the Bible, we're talking about the Bible. We're kind of looking at the Bible uh, from outside of it and, and, and discussing its trustworthiness and those kinds of things. Now, to some of you in this room, you're on a journey and you know that in a few months you're going to go to Ethiopia, so to speak, and possibly we'll have a kid with Giardia. Here's what I mean by that. You are personally right now in a situation where you're exploring for your own personal self. Is this really true or not? Is what we're doing in here kind of a sham and a waste of time? Are there just some good basic teachings in here, but, but all these other questions I have aren't, aren't to be answered? If that's you, then I hope you lean forward and, like my buddy Cliff did and really engage in this for yourself. Some of you are engaged in conversations with people where it's really, really immediate. In other words, you're saying, I know there are some good answers, but I haven't looked at this in a long time, or I don't know them for myself. And so you're engaged really closely with that. Some of you are not at that place right now. And so some of what we're going to talk about today may kind of feel a little bit academic or, or who cares kind of thing. I've already settled that issue. Here's my prayer for this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning as we talk about this, but if you are a Christian here today, and someone were to come to you and say, but how do you know that God exists? How do you know that Jesus Christ dying did anything for you? How do you know? And I would put this out to you. You're in grave danger of being unbiblical and not where God wants you if your answer simply is, well, I just believe it. Or I just know. Or I just have a feeling. Or I just had an experience. God has left for us a giant swath of facts, reliable historical data points that we need to engage with. And that's my prayer today is that you will engage in that way. Psalm 19, are you there? Uh, we are going to read from a great passage. We prayed through these uh, as a men's group this last Thursday night, and you're your final question for community groups this next week is to open your Bibles to Psalm 119 and just allow that to inform your prayer time as you kind of pray the scriptures back to God and let them soak in your, in your heart. I want to do this because I want to set a tone for today. I have children, and um, I think one of my own kids wrote this. Uh, it says, Dad, and came and slapped it on me. I honestly didn't quite see who, who it was, but I think it was one of my own kids. Uh, there are times when you as a parent... Uh, or if you don't have kids, your parents have said this to you, where they've said for you to do something or to not do something, 
or to remember something or to learn something. And the question that comes back from children often is, is the question what? Why? Now, some of you heard your parents say this and then you find yourself saying the same thing. Parents, sometimes, what is the simple and most accurate answer? Because I said so. We all know this. No one went to parent school, but we know this, right? Um, if you have, if you have, there's some children that begin to ask follow-up questions. I have one in particular right now who asks follow-up questions that, you know, if we're, if we're discussing eating your green beans, let's say, then she will say that, um, you know, uh, Arizona is a, is a, is a cool color. And you're like, and you, she just makes a statement so out of the random that it takes the conversation. You say, Arizona, first of all, isn't a color. It's not, there's nothing cool about Arizona in general except the high desert in winter. I mean, you don't even know where to go with that. We're talking about green beans over here. And sometimes as God's kids, let me just tell you, here's what we do. We receive something from, from God and we ask the same question. We say, why? And sometimes God answer, God's answer is simply because I told you so. I'm going to a place. I want to continue to go to a place where I just trust my father and I just say, okay, and I just do it. What I want to do today is read this passage so that it sets up a tone that even as we question, God's not afraid of our questions. The truth isn't afraid of questions. We're going to look and dig and, and needle around in things, but I just want to read this passage um, so that we can, we can start off this way. Look at verse 7, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. Father, this morning, would you give us a spirit of, yes, Father, as we hear uh, some different discussions and arguments for and against um, proofs, Lord. We thank you that you have given us a final authority to be able to rest our lives on and build our lives on. God, for those who are waiting and doubting, thank you so much that they're here in this place. I pray this would be a safe place for questions, but also, God, a place for, for pursuing and gaining answers. Holy Spirit, we recognize that apart from you, uh, we could just discuss for a couple of hours here and not have any gain. And so we pray that you would take the words that I say, uh, the words that you've said, and translate them and imprint them on our heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, looked at the fact that a lot of people trust the Bible worldwide through the centuries. But, it, but implied in that question is really this, can I trust the Bible? It's great that a lot of people do or don't, but what about me? And that's the question that we're really going to, to look at. Some of these questions, like I said, were uh, fairly easy to answer in short. Here's the first one. Why should a person believe the Bible? Um, here's the answer. We're going to look at that in great detail today. Thanks for the question. Okay, here's the next one. Why should we assume that everything in the Bible is literal and true? That is a fantastic question. Here's the answer. We shouldn't. We shouldn't just assume that the Bible is true and literal. I'll tell you what happens with that. That leads to cults. 
There are people around the world through the centuries who have been dead wrong. They've made a 100% commitment on, on not 100% facts, and they, and they haven't investigated. When something in them said, man, this doesn't feel right, there's something not right about this, and they've brushed it away to say, well, it must be true, and I'm just going to assume it, and they've led sometimes to their own grave. The Haley Bop Comet, remember that one? That's a more recent version of, of Jonestown down in Guyana and other things. So there's all kinds of cults and weird things that, that come up. So don't assume that everything in the Bible is little and true. Um, however, we're going to investigate some of that this morning. Um, I will say this. Here's my instruction, though. Investigate, and then at some point, begin to build on, on what, you've, what you've discovered. Here's what I mean by that. If you were to go build something right now, and you found, um, and you found some bedrock in a location that you were looking to build a house, here's what would be foolish to do. It'd be foolish to say, well, how can we know, though, that bedrock is what bedrock is, a great substance to, to build on? Let me invest all my money that I was going to build my house on, on drilling down into bedrock and discovering if that's true or not. Is bedrock a good thing to build a house on? Yes. Okay. Now there's ways to, to figure that out without drilling into it. What you've done now is you've just ruined your own bedrock by continuing to drill down. There are people in life who just want to drill and drill and drill and drill. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If you continue to just see through everything, there's just, there's nothing. There's no substance to anything. So what I would say is this. Investigate and then have faith and start building. We said it last, last week this way that reason assesses. Reason is a gift from God. Logic and reason and thinking. Reason assesses. Faith trusts. And every single time you sit in a chair or drive a car, you are using reason and faith. Don't be deceived into thinking you're one type of person or the other and that one has validity and the other is just guesswork. Utter nonsense. Um, That said, the Bible is literal and true. I'm going to make that statement up front, and I now want to lay out for you and kind of show you some of these things. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and his follow-up work, the book of Acts, wrote something in there that's really, really critical for you to understand. In, In Acts, he says this. He's writing to the person he's writing this for, and he says this, that there are many convincing proofs to what I'm about to write. And that's some of what we're going to look at this morning. Here's the next question. Does the Bible contain errors? Let me answer it very succinctly. In the original text of the Bible, the autograph, that usually means this, but it means auto, the, the, the person writing it themselves, there's no error. And now what we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes is transmission and manuscripts and how we have what we have today. But in the original manuscripts, there's no error. Written in logical terms, here, here it is, okay? If you're a logical thinker, there's a way to write logically. Here it is. One, God cannot err or make a mistake. First, uh, Titus 1, 2. Two, the Bible is God's word. John 10, 34 to 35. By the way, no notes this morning except what you choose to write down. Three, therefore, the Bible cannot contain error, just as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So God cannot err. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, the Bible has no errors. Question three is this. That's going to be a little bit unsatisfactory for some of you. We're going to get to to some more of this. Should we take the Bible literally? 
Um, here are some of the questions that surrounded this one that kind of I'm compiling into one question. Which commands are for us today? What about the conflicts that seem to be there for science and archaeology and the Bible? Uh, here's how I answer that. First, you need to define terms. What do you mean by literal? Uh, if I were to ask, uh, I'm going to ask JJ here a question, um, and you tell me, you tell me if there's an easy out of yes or no, okay? Here it is. JJ, have you stopped kicking your dog? No? So you're still kicking your dog? <laughs> I mean, church ought to be the most honest place in the world. There's a whole separate prayer time for that later, JJ, but... Do you see the point? That question implicates you either way. If you say, no, I haven't, it means you've continued. If you say that, yes, you have, it means that you were kicking your dog at one point, which maybe you've never done before. So we need to define terms. So when someone comes and says, are, are you one of those who takes the Bible literally? Before you answer too quickly, you ought to just say, you know what, let's define terms. What are we talking about? What does that mean? Um, let me give you a couple of examples um, of this recognize that as we answer this question, as we're looking at this question, here's part of the hurdle that we're trying to get past. There are certain limitations to language, and there are certain nuances of language, and those are fluid. They change over time. So that's part of, that's part of the d dynamic of what we're talking about. Let me give you a couple of examples and, and see if you track with what I'm saying. First of all, parables illustrate a point versus convey, con convey fact. Okay? Now, here's what you see in the Bible, though, is this. Jesus taught in the following parable. It's letting you know when it's a parable and when it's not parable. So it doesn't give us, the reader, the right to make everything a giant parable. Right? The Bible says specifically when it's a parable and when it's not. But when a parable is being taught, it's a, it's a made-up story to illustrate a point. So do you take the Bible literal? Well, it depends on what we're talking about, if it's a parable or, or not. Here's another one. Hyperbole, English teachers, what does that mean? Or English students who are getting good grades. What? Simple. An overstatement, an exaggeration, right? So does the Bible use hyperbole? Absolutely. So do we take hyperbole literally? Right, do you see? So there's, a, there's some nuance here. Let me give you an example. Um, you probably haven't memorized this verse of late, but, but it's fairly easy to memorize. It's pretty short. Psalm 6. Anyone know what that is? Here it is. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Is that literal or not? That's a hyperbole, right? That's an overstatement to say I'm, I'm in deep anguish and in deep sorrow. So do you take the Bible literal? Absolutely I do. Does the Bible use hyperbole? Yes. So there's, there's another example. Uh, here's one. The Bible describes things. Here's your Scrabble word of the week, okay? If you get nothing out of this and you enjoy Scrabble, just write this down. Your spell check will get freaked out by this. It won't like you for this, but just tell it to learn it and you'll figure it out. The Bible describes things phenomenologically. Oh, I got through that. Phenomenologically, okay? Now, just spit that out at work tomorrow. I mean, you will just get some heads turning. Here's what that means. It describes things as they appear to be rather than necessarily how they are. Let me give you an example. Does the Bible use the idea of the sun rising and the sun setting? Absolutely. The rain falling. Yeah, it does, right? 
Now, what's interesting about that is someone could come along and say, see, those ancients, they didn't know diddly squat about the sun rising and, and setting. It doesn't really do that at all. Now, that same intellectual hobnob could do this. He could walk out later on that night, put his arm around his sweetie and say, isn't this a beautiful sunset? What did he do? He just described things in the exact same way that the Bible describes them. He will talk tomorrow about the, the rain falling, right? So it's still a commonly used term for us to do. Instead of taking yourself and putting yourself out in some fixed point in space and saying, I'm going to write from here. Where would you go in the, in the universe, first of all? You, you, would, you would write as they appear to you. Here's, the, here's what I think. I mean, I look back on this now. I say, here's the merciful genius of this, of our Lord. He actually describes things in such a way, think about this a second, that is accessible through the ages, no matter your scientific advancement up to that point. Do you know there are people today that when they see a plane fly over their head, they live in the jungle somewhere in Brazil and other parts of the world, that they think it's some crazy bird, right? I mean, there are people who are living in that day and age. And to talk about rotating earths and all of that wouldn't make any sense. And yet we can still, in our super advanced world that we live in, we still talk about falling rain, rising suns, setting suns, right? And that translates through the ages. So uh, that's another uh, example of language. Here's another one. There's more than one way to say the truth. Here's what I mean by this. Four gospels are written by four different people, right? There are four witnesses of some events that happen. Um, if you're to be a witness at a car accident, you might go and, um, and be interviewed by a police officer, by someone there investigating and says, what did you see? And you say, look, I saw two cars crash into each other. They drove right into each other. Okay. The next person comes along and says, this person, car A, that red one right there, ran a red light and smashed into that blue car right there that was, that was coming the other way. Now, those are both true statements, but one had the advantage of being around the corner and seeing that the light was red. Are those both the same true event, right? Are they going to read a little bit different? Absolutely. Now, what if a third person was at a different intersection and say, the blue car came along, it hit some barrels, pulled like a Dukes of Hazard thing, it was on two wheels, and it landed on top of the red car. Is that the same true statement? No. That's not hard. That's, no. That's not the same event. We're now talking about something completely different. Here's what you'll find in the four Gospels. If you were to have seen in one of those accounts someone saying um, something dramatically different, then you'd have to look at that and question it. But if you look at it and say, wow, those are two different vantage points, maybe even writing to two different authors about the same true event. It doesn't change the truthfulness of it, but that sheds more light on it because there was a red light involved and that person had that perspective. That's all that is. Um, here's another one. There are different standards of precision. Does anyone know how far I live from our church? Anyone know? Huh? 0.6 miles. Okay, math major. Um, so a few of you know where I live, um, and you, you know, gave a few guesses. You could say blocks, whatever. Here's what I typically say. I have probably told you I live about a half mile from the church. Okay. Now, is that, is that true or not? Is that literal or is it not literal? Okay. Point 0.6 is actually wrong. According to Google, it's point 0.4. It was one point off of, of half mile. So I live, according to Google Maps, I live point 0.4 miles. Okay. Now, let's say that we say, well, is that true? Well, is it literal or is it not? 
So we could take it a step further and say, well, I've got this super secret FBI tool that's a laser, and it gets things down to, you know, down to the, the hundredth of an inch. And so you actually live 0.4169, let's say, whatever, uh, you know, miles from the church. Well, is that literally true? Yes or no? I mean, couldn't you, you could really go on further than this. Are we measuring from my walkway? Are we measuring from my door? How about the inside of the door? Or the out? I mean, we could really go detailed with this. Let me just, let me just say this. So when someone's asking, is it literal? Right? Here's, here's the standard that I, I want you to take this and overlay it on the scriptures and overlay it in your regular speaking and see if this rings true. The standard by which you describe distances should be um, true by the degree of accuracy that's implied by the speaker and understood by the hearer. It should be true by the degree of accuracy that's implied by the speaker. If I say, I live exactly half a mile from this church, I am implying that I'm giving you something uh, more than just roughly. If I say in everyday speech to you, I live about a half mile from the church, none of you freak out and say, well, you're a lying pastor. It's 0.4 miles. I Googled you. <laughs> Fraud! You know, I mean, you could do that, but everyone's just think you're nuts, right? Um, so, I mean, just uh, here's, here's how you lay that out. And again, think about this in terms of the Bible because numbers come up, distances come up. And so you, so you have to make these assessments. These are limitations of language that we're talking about. That, that, that are just every day, but you could, you could sort of zero in. Uh, if we're talking about how far from the church versus whether my kid can go to a certain school or not, you have to be within, um, you know, half a mile, exactly 0.5 miles. Well, I'm in because I'm 0.4 miles, but if it was 0.6, I'd be out. So all of a sudden, there's a, there's a new level of accuracy that's needed, a crime scene. We have a new level of accuracy that, 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 that's needed for that. So that's distance. Here's, here's another one, a last one. There's, there's, there's just a bunch more, um, but these, these help frame the answer of do you take the Bible literal or not? We're not finding loopholes to change our theology and kind of force something in here. We're just answering a simple question. Do you take the Bible literal and true or, 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 or not? Here's one, quotes taken out of context. Um, did you know that the Bible, I mean, someone says, you take the Bible literally? You say, yes, I do. Well, the Bible says there is no God. So that's literally true? I mean, how do you answer that? Say, well, I guess you got me. I guess there's no God. Well, the first part of the verse uh, says what? Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So does the Bible say it? Absolutely. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a quote taken out of context. This happens all the time, by the way. Uh, many Christians, I don't know many Christians that, that get much airtime, but when they do, many times, here's what happens. They'll say, man, I, I said this, and it was edited down into this little short thing that left all the God talk out or whatever, or, you know, whatever else it was. So there's editing that's, that's kind of going on. A person can come and say, well, the Bible says X, Y, Z, and, and you say, well, gee, Paul quoted pagan uh, philosophers Paul, to, to, to take a point. So there are places in Scripture that are saying things. You have to read it in context. It's basic. Um, enough of those. Let's move on. The Bible isn't just true for spiritual truth. This is a, this is a popular notion today, too. It's a, it's a way to help God out. It's a way to help the Lord say, well, 
there, there are things that we don't know, and so uh, here's what it is. The Bible's true for spiritual matters, but not for, for other kinds of matters. Um, you know, regular things don't look to the Bible, but, but for spiritual truth, look to the Bible. But there's, there's a problem with that. The Bible itself, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we mentioned it, says this, all Scripture is inspired by God. Does that mean, then, if you were to write that logically, you'd say, that means that God is wrong, or God is lying. And God cannot lie. So there's a contradiction right there. Let me read some more verses for you. Psalm 12, 6 says this, The words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Does that sound like there's a portion of it, spiritual truth, that's, that's true and real, but for the rest of it, you have to just kind of take with a grain of salt? Here's another one, Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. The Bible doesn't tell us every fact on a subject. We know we didn't turn to it for, you know, high school biology. But when the Bible, what the Bible affirms is true. And so you look at that and say, the Bible talks about weather patterns. The Bible talks about constellations. The Bible talks about creation. The Bible talks about all these different things. Here's what I would say to you. When you are confronted with some new fact, and I put the word fact in quotation marks in my notes so that we can say we're going to suspend judgment on that and say it's a, it's a fact in name only. When, when confronted with a new fact said to contradict Scripture, here are the three things I want you to do. One is to examine the data that is given to you. So someone comes to you and says, hey, there's a new fact. Don't just take it at the word because a lot of people believed it. Don't just take it at the word because someone has the, the, the number, the letters PhD after their name. Don't just take his word because some famous pastor said it was true. Examine the evidence that's coming into you, right? Here's the second thing. Re-examine the appropriate biblical texts that have to do with that yourself. You know what this is doing? This is getting us more into the word of God. This is part of why as you witness and as you share and as you're bold with your faith and as you wear your faith on your sleeve, you grow as a Christian. Are you stagnant in your faith? Are you stagnant in your Christian walk? Here's why. If you just keep going to practice over and over and over and you play against the same practice drill squad all the time, guess what happens? It just, you don't grow anymore. You get stagnant. Once you get into a game and people are doing things that you didn't expect, practice becomes vital to you. And you go and you go, man, i got to figure that one out because I got slaughtered out there today. So as you're engaging with people in discussion about different kinds of things, as they're bringing to you things, you need to be able to sit there and realize, wow, what this person's saying seems to challenge them. Why is that? Where are there good answers? Where are they? And it begins to grow you in a real way rather than in a hypothetical way. Um, here's an example. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the third thing in a second. Uh, an example from my high school years was this. Mikhail Gorbachev, who is he? History people. Okay. Yeah, someone just went like this, right? He's the Russian president in the, in the Cold War era with Ronald Reagan, right, in the 80s. Now, you know what it was said to me, what was floating around the Christian world at that time? That he was the Antichrist. He had the mark of the beast. Couldn't miss it. He had a giant, like I think it's a birthmark or whatever it is, on his forehead. Okay. Now, that was said, clearly, he is, we were kind of heading toward what looked like the end of the world and the apocalypse with buttons being pushed and missiles going, and we had drills. I don't know if any of you did this. I had a genuine drill to get under my desk for a nuclear holocaust. 
I don't know what school administrator thought that was a good idea, but um, have you seen the pictures of a nuclear bomb going off? Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's where the world was. And so Christians were saying, clearly, he's the Antichrist. He's got the mark of the beast. So, so when that comes along, you have to re-examine the biblical text and say, well, is that really true? And the, and the, the, the data point's coming in. Here's the third thing. Keep a humble stance on peripheral issues. There are always side issues that are going to be coming at you. And you could invest, if you, in, if you investigated and researched every new little side issue that came up, you know what you would do? You would be running around totally off mission of what a, a Christ follower was supposed to be about. You would, have, you would have no time to love on your neighbors, much less know your neighbors, because you're studying and researching and arguing and, and, and all that. Does that make sense? So to keep a humble stance on, on these peripheral issues is a, is a wise thing to do. Here's what I would say for a Christian. Eagerly anticipate with absolute confidence that each new archaeological discovery, scientific breakthrough, and historical finding will continue to catch up to the Bible. I tend to love history. I don't even know how good I did at history in school, but I love history. I really like history and learning about things. It's phenomenal how many times... Archaeological discoveries, scientific breakthroughs, uh, medical things continue to catch up to the Bible. And I use that word quite intentionally because it's out in front. What happens, though, is this. There's a period of time where a fact, quote, unquote, is floating around out there. And it puts you on the defensive and you say, huh, how does that square with the Bible? That seems to be a really valid point. I would say this. Suspend judgment on that and begin to do your homework on that. Don't be like a person in a wave tossed here and there going, oh, the Bible's totally true and utterly the word of God and it's literal. <gasps> Hyperbole. What do I do with that? The guy didn't really drench his bed. Oh, that's a good answer. Oh, the Bible's totally God's word. You know what I'm saying? And just back and forth with this. Here's what I'd say. Just suspend judgment on that for a second and begin to do your homework and to research it. History shows that suspending judgment on certain facts would have been wiser than moving forward boldly with your statement of this, that, or the other thing. Here's the problem, by the way, with using tradition as an ultimate authority. The church, what the church decided on an issue was true for the Roman Catholic stream. The church made several bold and well-publicized errors in that. And so as science came along, certain people who were making discoveries about truth that we would widely accept today as true were condemned as heretics. Why? Because it went against the tradition, which was the ultimate authority for that religious stream. Move on to the next question. I told you, some of these are longer, some of them are shorter. Is the Bible we have today the same one God gave us originally? Here's the question being asked in some different ways. The accuracy of the Bible, the transmission um, how do we even begin to validate something that's this old? Okay, great questions. I hope you've asked them. I'm a big fan of biographies, and I love reading stories um, just of people. And there's some lives really worth making movies about and writing about, and some that aren't. And um, it's always disappointing when, you, when you've invested time in a movie and you're like, yeah, a other people they could have picked. That was a, a lame one. Here's a good one for you. This is just free. This is off, off topic. Um, one called uh, The Heavenly Man by a guy named Brother Yoon. He's a guy in China that this is all in, in current 
times, and it feels like you're reading a bit of the book of Acts over in China for a guy who has pursued Jesus Christ, and God has just continued to work his miracles and his kingdom around this guy. Great read if you ever get a chance to do it. That's not what we're talking about. Let me show you a picture that, um, that, that, that probably will be familiar to many of you. Who is that? Okay, we live a few miles from Cupertino, worldwide headquarters of Apple. We live within a couple of months of his death. This book cover has been all over the U.S., the world, and my computer screen, okay? I was in London, and this is plastered all through the airport as the absolute front giant thing to be selling people. He's a worldwide known figure. He's a CEO, was a CEO of a rapidly growing company. Now, I decided uh, as part of my 24-hour flight there, I knew I wouldn't be having any reading time or listening time on the way home. Um, I decided to get this, uh, this book. And it was a fascinating read for me because I've been using Apple computers since I was in late high school. And I've lived and worked within a couple of miles from Apple for a really, really long time. And as I went through and read this story, there were all these things that, um, that I, you know, that were part of my childhood and growing up. I ministered to kids at Homestead. That's where I went to high school. Things happened at Westgate Mall. That was a half mile from where I grew up. Just all these things that happened really locally to us, those of us who who live in Silicon Valley. Um, To get this project done, here's what happened. Interviews went on. Research went on. Compiling went on. um, And then communicating, telling a story was was done by by the author. Um, And... Part of the compelling thing about this person who wrote this biography is he was invited in by Steve Jobs several years before he died and said, I want you to write my biography, and I don't want you to hold things back. So he invited him and spent hours and hours and hours and hours recording, asking questions, taking walks, sitting in his home, getting to know his family, being an eyewitness to what went on. Now, let me ask you a question. If 50 years goes by... And as I listened to this book, I didn't know Steve Jobs personally, although I've eaten in the same building with him as I've met with people at Apple. If 50 years went by and um, someone were to come along and say, um, this book is, is a sham, it's totally false, would it be any more true or less true because 50 years has gone by? Yes or no? No, right? It's there. Now, I, I did not personally talk to Walter Isaacson, the guy that wrote the book and interviewed him. What I can tell from the story unfolds very much how I remember it, with certain nuances, of course, painting good or bad on different things and whatnot. But in general, I look at that and say, as a person who lived in the same city at the same time, I would verify that that, that, that account is, is true. If someone were... We'll talk about this more in detail later, but let's say 100 years goes by, 200 years goes by, 1,500 years goes by. Does the document change its truthfulness or validity? So it's an irrelevant statement to say 2,000 years have gone by. How could we possibly know if it's true? If it's true, it's true, right? So the, the time gap does present certain problems in what we have today, but it doesn't present problems in whether a statement is true or not. Is that clear? Okay. Now, as we look at a, um, a research project like that, 
what we have is this. We have people that come along every few years, and in every generation there's at least one of these characters, but there's a guy by the name of Dan Brown. And he wrote a stirring book called The Da Vinci Code. And in The Da Vinci Code, he starts writing this story. And he writes it in such a way that it's fictional, but he wants to present it in a way that's very truthful and factual. And, um, and I wouldn't even be bringing it up because it's actually already peaked and totally gone by the wayside, except for the fact that a guy by the name of Tom Hanks, you may have heard of him, made a movie, and he was the lead character in that. So because it was made into a movie, and because Tom Hanks was in it, I promise you that is continuing to be seen and thought and planted in people's minds. So it has reached kind of pop culture level such that I want to bring it up still, okay? Uh, sometimes you're watching a movie, and if you ever watch a movie in an area that you are an expert in or even know something about, you can watch a movie sometimes and just laugh at the incredible lack of research that went into that movie, okay? Um, I surf. I'm not an expert at surfing, but I've been surfing since I was in junior high school. So I know a little bit about surfing. I remember watching surfing movies, and every surfing movie I see, maybe with the exception of Soul Surfer or surfing documentaries, um, gets it wrong. Here's what they do. Here's the most simple thing that you don't... You can just be around the waves and pick this up, okay? If you live somewhere near the coast and you're not landlocked, you get this. Where they're filming, and the, the character's up, and he gets riding on a wave, and he drops in on a wave, and the curl's going behind him, and he's going this way. Next shot, he's this way, and he's slashing off the lip facing this way on a wave. The curl's behind him this way. Have you ever seen this happen in real life? No, you haven't. Video games, maybe. But it's not real. That's, that's a simple thing that when you watch those two edits, you go, clearly a non-surfer put this together. It's laughable. I mean, anyone who even remotely understands it would just think that's ludicrous. Go to any expert in this area. We have police officers, teachers, medical people. My dad was a pilot. I just ask him. I mean, I've seen my father-in-law with the, with the 777 manual open on his lap. It's about this big. I'm not exaggerating. No hyperbole. It's on his lap. He's reading it. And I say, Dad, is this how it goes with a pilot? And he just starts to laugh. Why? Because it's ludicrous, right? Here's what people who have even begun to do some study with Jesus Christ, the historical documents of the Bible, and the story of Christianity, how it came to pass. The movie and the book is laughable. Very easy to spot and very easy to start to just say, Utterly false. I'll show that to you in three simple steps. And there are just point after point. Books were written, by the way. It was such a big deal that books were written to counterpoint and this and that. I don't want to bring this up to pick on Dan Brown, but to say this, this specifically. Uh, 2 Peter Second Peter 1.16. Just listen. You can write it down. Check it later. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to... His majesty. No matter how powerfully told, well-produced, critically acclaimed, or widely held, truth is truth. And it will stand up under criticism, scrutiny, and investigation. Here's kind of a dying art in our day, okay? Here it is. Rigorous analysis, dogged pursuit of truth, and careful thought. You know what those require? More than a half-hour sitcom with a commercial break. They just do. That requires time. It requires you hanging onto something long enough to go, I'm not going to let go of this text until I'm understanding what it means and says. 
So what do we make of lost gospels, newly found symbols, secret knowledge? By the way, the Gnostic gospels or the Gnostic heresy. Gnostic means hidden or secret. Okay? What do we do to secret knowledge or claims made by experts or even more devious is this? Simply reinterpretations of how to take the Bible. Not as authoritative and infallible, but a narrative to continue a conversation or offer a perspective. That makes me sick when someone says that. I just want to offer a perspective and the Bible offers perspective. I say, well, it's a little different than that. The Bible never claims to just join in a conversation and kind of offer a little nuanced perspective that you can take or leave. The Bible makes some pretty clear perspectives. Here's what you do with all of those. You investigate. When someone comes next week with a lost gospel that says, breaking news, we've discovered this or that. Breaking news, we've discovered the body of Jesus Christ. You better investigate that. Don't just chuck it and say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't believe that. That's assuming things are literal and true. Go and investigate it. Your friends who don't believe in the Bible may have had person after person who just says, well, basically I assume the Bible's true because my parents told me or my church told me. You know what they've done? They've begun to form an opinion of you as a Christian and Christians in general. Wow, these are people who don't live in reality. You know who would line up with that? I would. I would get in line and say, that's not living up to reality. It may be true what you've placed your faith in, but you ought to know that it's true. God gave us the tools to know that we know that we're true. We're not taking a a test hoping and kind of guessing. I know you've been there. There's times you take a test and you're like, I know this. How'd you do? I know I got a 98%, maybe 99. There was one question I was a little hazy on. Do you know that God's given us the tools to know that we know about these things? It's remarkable. Um, Kurt, come on up. I was thinking, uh, you know, if only we had an English teacher um, who had a master's in literature who could share with us some thoughts regarding manuscript evidence. Um, And then Kurt came to my mind. And so uh, I'm going to give Kurt the floor for a couple of minutes here. Um, And he's just going to talk to you a little bit about about ancient manuscripts, something that most of you on a regular basis don't stop and think about a whole bunch. But Kurt loves to think about it. (laughs) How are you guys doing today? Um, I'm used to speaking in front of teenagers, not so much adults, so I'm a little nervous. So sorry. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit today about what we call textual criticism. And textual criticism is, uh, it's really kind of a, an area of study that's concerned with the accuracy of, of documents as they are transmitted through time. Um, and I'm going to lay out some generalities first. Generally, uh, what textual critics look at, or one of the, one of the ways they look at things, uh, are looking at, A, the number of documents that survive, the number of manuscripts that survive. This is particularly important uh, before printing was invented in the 1400s, because all the copying was done by humans. Humans are susceptible to error at times. Uh, so the number of manuscripts, the greater the number of manuscripts, uh, the greater the chance that you have a complete copy within those manuscripts, uh, looking at all of them as a whole. And then also it's uh, really important to look at the date of those manuscripts in, in the, the time that has passed between when the, when the original text was actually written and the earliest surviving copy that we have. So um, just to give you a couple of examples to... to uh, that we'll compare the New Testament specifically to. Uh, right now, I just finished teaching Oedipus Rex to my seniors, uh, which is by Sophocles. It was written around 420 BC. Um, and we have the earliest, I want to get this right, the earliest surviving copies are from about 1000 AD, the beginning of the 11th century AD. And we have 
about 193 manuscripts of Sophocles' writing in total, all of his plays. So uh, we have probably a third of those, 60 of them-ish, dealing with Oedipus Rex. Uh, so we have a gap of around 1,400 years between when it was actually written in the, the earlier surviving copies that we have of that. Um, the, probably the gold standard other than the Bible, of, of ancient manuscripts is Homer's Iliad. I'm sure you've all read that or have been exposed to it in some way, shape, or form. And if you haven't, uh, you're probably in junior high and you will be, I'm sure. So um, Homer's Iliad uh, is, was written around eight, 800 B.C. The earliest surviving copies that we have are from about 400 B.C. Excuse me. And we have about 650 manuscripts uh, of Homer's Iliad. And when I say manuscripts, some are fragments, some are complete. Um, when, when a textual scholar looks at these manuscripts to put together an, an edition of, of what they think the original tax, text was, they need to look at all of them and figure out where scribal errors, if, if they misspelled something or whatnot, they have to fix that. So uh, these, these texts, there's quite a few texts. I don't want to bore you guys with, with tons and tons of data. But... Um, these texts specifically are looked at as being authoritative. There aren't any real questions about if, if, the, um, if the transmission of the text has been accurate or not. And um, with, with these, the minimum in, in the Iliad, we have a 400-year gap between when it was written and when, it was, when, it was, uh, when the earliest copy that we have is from. Uh, with the New Testament... Obviously, we have a multiplicity of books by different authors, so that's an issue. But the New Testament books were written, near as we can tell, between 50 and 100 A.D. Uh, the earliest surviving copy that we have, or fragment, the manuscript that we have, is from about uh, 120 A.D., which is only a gap of 20 years. Uh, so there's very little time to allow uh, scribal error to, to come in. And it also, the fact that we have a copy, it's actually a copy of a part of John, uh, that, that we have this copy in, in 120 AD really helps establish that, that John was actually written much earlier, because it was written in Ephesus, most people think, and this copy comes from Egypt. So for it to travel around that way takes some time. Um, and so it really establishes that John was written in probably 80, 90 AD-ish, which is within the lifetime, like Dave was talking about earlier, there were, there were people alive who could say, no, no, that's not true. I know that this isn't true because I was there. So, um, but the earliest manuscripts around 120 AD, uh, in Greek, only in Greek, only in the original languages, we have more than 5,600 manuscripts uh, for the New Testament. If you include uh, different translations, which came in relatively early, Christianity being an evangelistic religion, um, translations were an early product of, of Christianity. So if you include translations into Latin and Coptic and uh, other languages, you get to between twenty and 25,000 manuscripts for the, the New Testament books. Um, what happens with that is um, you have... One scholar puts it as an embarrassing amount of material to work with compared to scholars of, uh, who are working with different materials like the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and things like that. And so this transmission, um, when you have that many manuscripts, 
you can really compare and contrast and look at, okay, you can put them in families and say, okay, well, this started here, this started here, this started there. And you can compare them and, and find a lot of these scribal errors. There are definitely variations within manuscripts. Uh, but the vast, vast majority of those variations in the, in the New Testament are uh, spelling errors. Uh, Greek is a language where word order doesn't matter quite as much as in English. The, the classic example is if you say man bites dog and dog bites man in English. Those are very, very different sentences. In Greek, it doesn't matter. It means the same thing. One's always a subject. So um, when you look at the errors and you look at how many of them actually affect uh, doctrine, there aren't any any errors that really affect doctrinal, bedrock doctrinal um, beliefs and statements. So um, this wealth of manuscripts, I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but the wealth of manuscripts allows us to fix the text with a really high degree of accuracy and uh, confidence because we can, we can really cross-check all these things. Uh, this is a really brief overview. If you want to know more about the nuts and bolts of this, please come talk to me. Um, yeah. Thanks, Gart. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me invite the band up right now. We're gonna we're gonna sing a song that we taught you last week called Lamp. Um, and while while the band is coming up, let me just throw out a couple of names for you. Please go investigate more. We had someone come to men's group and say, "Man, some of the stuff you said last week, I started looking into it some more and and just started doing some research on his own." But um, Josh McDowell does some great manuscripts, specifically manuscript evidence kinds of work. Um, I've been listening to some Wayne Grudem. Got a big thick book on him. Uh, Norman Geisler is another one. Robbie Zacharias uh, he has done a lot of work on some of these things. But there are, there are just really compelling uh, factual things that you look at and say, as that quote said, there are, there's an embarrassingly large amount of, um, of resource material undisputed in, in, by all accounts um, that, that what we have today is what was originally written. So that's important for us to know. One, one other area to investigate is just the historical evidence. Dr. Luke, for instance, was regarded as an excellent um, ancient historian by all standards, not those who are Christians only, but just by the way he lays things out. Let me just bullet point about five things here for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most celebrated and documented miracle in all of history. Okay? Let me rattle off a few things that if you were to go and start to investigate this and say, is this true or not, um, here are some of the things you would come across. Thomas Arnold, professor of modern history at Oxford, says this, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. Benjamin Warfield, Princeton professor, said the resurrection of Christ is a fact. Um, it was recorded in the scripture shortly after it happened. Mark uh, quite possibly was written within a few years of the events. So those who would come and say that a legend occurred and people went and rewrote things, this would be a little bit like, like someone saying, well, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was a uh, phenomenal snowboard with bright orange hair and he won several gold Olympic medals and he did like nine flips on his snowboard and he owned an airplane company and skydived a lot. All of us would say, What? First of all, you're kind of talking about Sean White. He's the snowboarder you're talking about. And I don't even know if he skydived, but I don't think he owned airplanes. He was more into... We would just look at that and laugh that off, right? Because that would be pure fabrication and legend. Gospel of Thomas, by the way, which Dan Brown got most of his source from, Jesus Seminar gets most of their source work from, was written in 230 A.D. 
So a lot of time had passed. Guess what? People wanted to get in on and tell their own version of the story. If we have time, I'll read from you a brief section, and you'll see how these just disqualified themselves. If someone came along and said this in our lifetime, we wouldn't even care much about Steve Jobs, but we'd say, eh, not true, though. We would just look at that and have a problem with it. Um, the, the resurrection was confirmed by bitter enemies, a guy named Saul, who upon meeting the risen Christ converts and becomes Paul. Um, it transforms those around him. The disciples become bold witnesses to what they had seen and heard, such that they actually went to their death believing that. And their own family, the half-brother James and Jude, turn and worship Jesus as God. I don't know if you have brothers, but something's got to go on to say, all right, now I believe you're God. I'm going to worship you. Mother. The mother turns and worships him as God. All these were good Jewish people that would know that to fall down and worship a false god leads you to eternal damnation. They wouldn't risk that if that weren't true. Finally, medical and archaeological findings continue to affirm the gospel record. Read about some, uh, some remote guy goat herder in March of 1947 who wanders into a cave and finds the Dead Sea Scrolls and what that's all about. Go start to blow your mind about that. That's within some of our lifetimes in this room, and it just starts to get really incredible. But I just wanted to tick off a few more of these questions, and uh, we'll save a few of them for next week as well, but I wanted to get to as many as possible. Let's start with this one. Why upper right? Why are there no stories from Jesus' childhood? That was a great question. Uh, the answer to that is there are. Um, there's the birth. His miraculous birth is, is mentioned. Um, he was visited by wise men, fleed to Egypt. Uh, he taught at the temple. He was left at the temple. Remember all these? These were all kind of from his childhood growing up. But the reason the bulk of the stories um, aren't from there is simple. Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, the Bible says. It records his first miracle at a wedding in Cana, right? And so, the, the bulk and the thrust of what the story is is there. So go back to the Steve Jobs thing. If it was pertinent, we'd know all about his fifth year of life in kindergarten. But if it wasn't, we wouldn't take a lot of the story. We've only got so much time to, to, to tell the story. So that's a great question, but it is there. Um, I will tell you that, that more and more fanciful stories got, got roped in as the years went on. I'm going to read from you a short section. This is all you need to read of the Gospel of Thomas. Don't spend a lot of time researching this silliness. But you'll kind of see where, uh, where some, of it, some of it went from there. Um, here's another question, and it's a great one. We'll kind of wrap up with this. Is the Bible closed? Meaning, is it... Um, is it can you still add to it? Is God still revealing? What if a new book showed up in 2015? Would that be allowed or not? Great question. Turning your Bibles to Revelation 22. Very, very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 22, and just sit there for a second. Um, so just 200 years after Jesus died, rose again, and went to heaven, many began to write their own versions of Jesus and the story of his life. And these are, these are some of the other, what you'll hear, Gospels that are out there. Now, here's from the Gospel of Thomas. Tell me if this sounds, as a Christian theologian, and you're a Christian theologian if you read and study the Bible. You study God, okay? So tell me if this, um, A, if this rings true with the rest of the canon of Scripture, and um, you, just, you just can listen to it yourself. This little child Jesus, when he was five years old, was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together the waters that flowed there into pools and made them straightway clean and commanded them by his word alone. 
And having made soft clay, he fashioned thereof twelve sparrows, and it was the Sabbath when he did these things. And there were also many other little children playing with him. And a certain Jew, when he saw what Jesus did, playing upon the Sabbath day, departed straightway and told his father Joseph, Lo, thy child is at the brook, and he hath taken clay and fashioned twelve little birds, and hath polluted the Sabbath day. And Joseph came to the place and saw, and cried out to him, saying, Whereof dost thou uh, doest these things on the Sabbath, which is not lawful to do? But Jesus clapped his hands together and cried out to the sparrows and said to them, Go! And the sparrows took flight and went away chirping. And when, G and when the Jews saw it, they were amazed and departed and told their chief men what they had seen Jesus do. What you hear in that, if you're a Bible reader, is you hear borrowed lines from that, don't you? You kind of hear, oh, uh, on the Sabbath, and that polluted, and, and they were amazed. And he did. But A, you look at this and say, five-year-old Jesus, that doesn't, fit, that doesn't fit with anything else we know about Jesus, that as soon as he's caught, he claps, commands him to go, and, and dismisses the evidence, right? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Secondly, that clearly sounds like a miracle. It is a miracle. That would contradict a far earlier writing in in the other four Gospels, saying the first miracle happened at such and such time. By the way, you read on from this place, he goes on to basically kill two children in vengeance. I mean, wacky stuff. Just stuff that you read and say, that, that sounds like in 200 years, someone talking about Steve Jobs having bright orange hair. The Bible has a finality to it. Uh, Hebrews 1 is a great place to see this. I know you're in Revelation. Stay there. Just write down Hebrews 1, 1. That in the old days, uh, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he's talked, um, he's, he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his life, his, his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection is the greatest sign accompanying God's message. If someone were to come alongside later on, let's say in the 1800s, and find some writings in the hills outside of New York City, this is the problem I have with Mormonism, and say, we've found something even better, and would present it to you as God's word, you ought to be concerned. You ought to investigate. You ought to look at that. And Paul himself says this, if I or, or an angel of God were to come and preach a different gospel than what we have here, let him be accursed. So knowing that God's word will be under attack in that kind of way. Um, by the way, some cursory research around Joseph Smith and him receiving these writings in the countryside um, begins to, to, to not stack up even remotely with the Bible. Joseph Smith believed that Missouri was the city of Zion and was the promised land. He prophesies in there that he's going to have that as an eternal possession to, to all generations. Missouri. I've never been there. And if you're from Missouri, no offense. Here's what happened. The Mormons actually don't own the place he was talking about in, in Missouri. They were actually driven from there in 1839 and settled elsewhere and, and moved on. Over and over, we could go through and investigate claims made by prophets of God. No different than Harold Camping from last week. No different whatsoever. It's just that some time has gone by. Time doesn't validate truth. Well, it happened in the old days. I guess that's true. It also doesn't negate truth. Oh, that happened 2,000 years ago. That couldn't possibly be true, right? We need to investigate. All right. Revelation. Um, look, look with me. 
for a moment. Verse 18. Verse 18 says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, when I read this as a little kid, I remember reading this and immediately taking that to mean the whole Bible and saying that whoever takes away or adds to this shouldn't be doing that. Then I went to Bible college, and Bible college taught me to look at things in context. And so I said, well, I think what it's actually talking about then is the book of Revelation, John's revelation that he's writing, and that's what he's talking about. And then more years have gone by, and I've grown some more, and I've thought about this fact. There's other places in the Bible where the order doesn't matter. You could put certain books in different order, but there are two books that have to be at the beginning and have to be at the end. Do you know what Genesis means? Beginning. Where does it have to go with the Bible? It has to go at the beginning. What is Revelation all about? It's about the end, right? It's about the coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the story. Where does it have to go in our Bibles at the end? Isn't it powerful that providentially God puts this verse right here at the end of the entire Bible? It says don't add to it or don't take away from this. Unbelievable. The Bible has a finality to it um, that it speaks for itself. Here are my conclusions this morning, Ben. Come on up, and um, let me just read through these. The, the single best way to see if the Bible is true is to read it. I can give you all kinds of book titles that will help you study. The best thing for you to do is to read your Bible. That really is the best way to see if this is true or not. My 17th year of life transformed my view of the Bible because I read it every single day for the first time in my life. And God began to do something spiritually in me because of that. Um, secondly, this series is called Grow to Go. We, are, we have been delivered a message. If you're a Christian today, you've been delivered a message of life-saving, eternal importance. What are you doing with that message? Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm freely giving it away. And so are you freely giving it away, humbly and faithfully? Finally, many reject a Jesus that isn't real. The question, can I trust the Bible, really becomes, what does the Bible say so I can know God's ways and, and frankly, God himself? Let me tell you a question that came in this week, and I love the question. Thank you for it, whoever wrote it down. Many wrote about manuscript and nuance things and this and that. Here's a question that might be pertinent to some of the things you're thinking about. Why does God not want homosexuals to marry? And why do some fundamentalists take it so far against them when it's really God's message about that instead of their own? That's what, that's what really becomes important of can we trust this book or not? That's why it's important what Kirk was talking about and some of you probably glazed over, you're like, wow, high school English, you know. That's why it's important to know and say, wow, no, 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 I'm really, really, really convinced this is God's word. So now, as it disagrees with my heart, as it disagrees with me, as it disagrees with my culture, God, I want to know your ways and follow it. Let me answer that very, very briefly. God designed marriage for one man, for one woman, for all of time. And humans throughout history have continued to mess up this definition. By divorce, by multiple partners at a single time, 
and by same-sex couples. And humans will continue to mess up the definition of marriage that God gave to us in the Scriptures. So why does God not want homosexuals to marry? My simple answer to that is this. Every boundary that's ever been given from God, I trust to be for our abundant good and our provision and our protection. So to ask why to that is a little bit back where we started with the kid asking the question, but why, but why, but why? To some of that, I don't know. God just defined it, and that's how, that's how it is. Without a, uh, here's the second part. Why do some fundamentalists, fundamentalists take it so far? Here's the answer. Some are mean people. Really, some are just very mean people. And some have chapter and verse in hand, and so they're so committed to being right and winning an argument with you that they will, they will disregard that there's a person there. Now, here's the other side to that, though. We are increasingly living in a state and in a country that has no tolerance for biblical morals. So the fact of the matter is, by my previous statement that I just made about a minute and a half ago, some would walk in and label me an abusive, intolerant bigot for the comments that I just made. Here's my challenge to you, my invitation to you, Christian, follower of Christ. Without apologizing for absolute truth, will you recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help? That's, that's what compassion is. Will you recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help? This church could stand here and condemn people for not parenting their kids well, or they could get up off their tail and say, what can we do to be a blessing in this neighborhood to help people who really, really, really need help raising their kids in this, in this valley? Practical, tangible kinds of ways. And guess what? You're doing it. It's awesome. It's an amazing thing to be a part of, and I love it. Do you view people as lost people without hope or wrong people without answers? Two totally different ways of approaching a person and engaging with them. Here's what I know. Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth, was sought after and flocked to by the very people who his message condemned. You catch that? That would mean that if I'm passing on a message that says, I don't know all the reasons for it, but God defined marriage as one man, one woman for all of time. That divorcees, people considering divorce, homosexuals wanting to get married or having a piece of paper in their hand would flock to me for that. They're not doing that, which means I have a long way to grow to be like Christ. But that's the modern day picture of sinners flocking to a man who unapologetically spoke absolute truth to them and a warning about, um, about judgment to come over their sin. I love you people so much. I love singing with you. And uh, Rob's got a smile on his face. That's a good thing. Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing some more and wrap up. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that you are defending your word. I thank you that you're using fallible people, people who make mistakes, people who get tongue-tied, people who forget the facts, um, to be part of defending your word from attack. And God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of power, a uh, spirit of humility to recognize the spirit of sonship that we have being adopted into your family, that nothing will touch that truth. I pray, God, that you would give us an unashamed confidence to name your name, to not deny you in front of our friends and our family and our neighborhoods, but to be a light, God, to the nations and starting right here in this area. I pray your blessing on everyone here, God. Would you purify our minds and our hearts um, as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.